Well, we are in a series called Dear Church, and this is a study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so it's been a really joy to uh, kind of go with this, uh, through this book with all of you. It's been, uh, some people, you know, when we've been looking through this book, sometimes there's this tendency to think, wow, this is a, a messed up church that Paul was writing to, and the more I study them, I don't actually think it's a messed up church. I think it's just a group of Christians who are trying to figure out how to live out their faith in a world that's very counter to their, new, their new disco- newly discovered faith. And it's something that they relate very well to us. Again, as we've been saying, the church in Corinth, to whom Paul was writing, was a church that was highly educated, very successful. It was kind of the center of a lot of trade. They were pluralistic spiritually. They, they were very spiritual, but loved to pick and choose from all kinds of things. Uh, they uh, we're living lives that nece- didn't necessarily reflect Christian values. And, uh, and so they were kind of, this is the world in which they live. And now there's a group of Christians who are saying, what does it look like now for us to live out our newfound faith, to live out a life with Jesus in a world that doesn't seem to reflect these values? And so that's why it's been a really good book for us to go through as a church, because a lot of these issues are ones that that we can relate to. Now, I know some of these weeks, and, and more recently, they've been feeling kind of weighty, haven't they? There, there's been just a lot of stuff in there. And I think the, the good thing about this is I, when things are weighty, I think it's often because they're so relevant and because we're, that this is really the heart of where we find life and we discover how God meets us in these places. I was thinking of uh, when I was growing up and, and going to school, I wasn't um, always a model student. Um, I, when I got married and my wife and I were talking, I found out that there were things called AP classes and honors classes. Uh, my counselors never gave me that menu to pick from. I don't know why. Um, but uh, so I, I wasn't big into school, but there was, I remember in algebra class, I was always the kid when they said, you know, David can eat five apples an hour and Sally can eat 13 apples an hour. How long will it take them to eat all the apples and Ralph's? You know, those kind of questions that I would always just say like, you know, I really don't care and I'll never care. So that was usually my response to that. It didn't, it, it, so I wasn't really listening too much in those moments. And, uh, but the one class that I, I often would listen, I remember in seventh grade, I was new uh, in junior high and uh, went to woodshop class. Now woodshop is, is uh, the same, all woodshop teachers basically come from the same uh, school, I think. And, and so basically first day we have like, um, you go in and Ron Swanson is teaching the class. And uh, look up the reference later. And, and so he's there usually missing a finger and, and, and starts off and says, hey, we're going to be working with these really cool, powerful tools. So you got to be careful. And then he throws on a video. Usually that's how it starts. And he shows you a video of like people who've lost a hand or who are blind because they weren't wearing their goggles and things like that. And, and then he flips the lights back on and turns on a saw and you hear the power and sticks a piece of wood through that and say, kids, you, I don't want you this to be your arm. You know, right there. That's, that's kind of how Woodshop starts, at least my teacher, that's why it was awesome class. It was great. But when you, when you start off that way, you think, okay, now I'm listening. Now this matters way more than how many apples someone can eat in an hour. The weightiness of it, when it starts to be something that, okay, this matters to my life, this applies, it just feels like you've got my attention. And I feel like we're going through this book of Corinthians, and, and Paul, in many ways, has my attention. 
As we're looking at these issues that week after week, I just think like, oh, that's relevant. Oh, that's relevant. Uh, We even joked as a teaching team, we just said like, hey, how about we just start our Christmas series now and just lighten things up a little. But the, the truth is, again, we believe that in these moments is where we really see the heart of God and where our hearts are pointed back to Jesus time and time again. And that's our desire here as a church, as we want to see the depth of how good our God really is. And the way we know that is when we see how broken we can really be as people. And, and so that is really what we're looking at. Now, some of you, after last week, if you were here last week, I made it to point one, and that's it. We didn't get any further, and, and some of you uh, were here or you're not here because you didn't want to hear the rest of it, and, and either way, um, what I'm really going to do is just kind of wrap it up really quickly, and we're going to move on to chapter seven, uh, but the thought that we need to understand for last week is in chapter six, verse 11, Paul had just listed a a list of different sins and and vices and things that people do. And in verse 11, and he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed. And again, this is an active, present kind of way of saying it. So you are being washed, you are being made holy, and you are being justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, What we really looked at is Paul was saying, hey, there's a lot of sins and behaviors that once before Jesus, that's what defined you. What you did is what defined you. And what you struggled with was what defined you. And what's going on in your lives, that's kind of your identity. But in Christ, you are now new. Something new has happened. In Christ, you are being washed. You are being made holy. You are justified In the eyes of God, that means when God looks at you, he sees someone who is not guilty. So it's it's important that we remember that truth because every time Paul deals with some of these deeper issues, he goes back to identity and says, in Christ, that's gone. So don't walk around with the identity of, oh, I'm the sinner. No, you're now the saint who sins. And it is very different. And and so when we can look at these struggles and we can look at these sins, we know like that isn't any longer who I am. And and notice if we, last week when we looked at the list of sins, if I said stand up when we get to you, we all would be standing. So there was no one sin that, that Paul said, well, that one Jesus can't really handle. Or that one's so light that maybe you can handle on your own. No, all of our sin apart from Christ makes us unrighteous, but in Jesus, we have new life. And and so that's what Paul was looking at last week. Now, in particular, he was dealing with uh, sexual morality and and what it looks like to live godly lives in that area. And we're not going to revisit all of it except for the rest of his argument. He essentially, the rest of chapter six says, the, the reason this is important is because, hey, this is no longer who you are. You have a new identity. I want you to look at the end of chapter six. He says in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So again, you have a new identity. It's been paid for by Jesus. You've been bought with a price. And now you are in Christ. You're no longer outside of Christ. So honor God with your body is his instructions. The the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You're no longer your old self. So that's his line of reasoning. And that's how he gets to this conclusion of of in your body now, let's honor God because he dwells in us. 
Now notice one thing. He, when you, we looked at even that list of sins described there in verses 8 and 9, or sorry, 9 and 10, those don't necessarily automatically go away right away in Jesus. Now for some, maybe God breaks the chains in your lives and, and, and you don't struggle with some of those things. But again, we're saints who sin. We're not sinners anymore. So God has made us something new. Now he's working that out in our lives, but it doesn't mean that, wow, if I ever do any of these things again, that's my identity. No, your identity is in Christ. We need to understand that as we go throughout this book. That's why we keep hammering it as we talk. So now, honor God with your bodies. Now we go into chapter seven. Chapter seven, Paul is gonna take this argument and go a little bit more on, okay, what does it look like to honor God if you are married? If, if you are, um, depending on if you're married to someone who maybe doesn't believe what you believe, as well as how do you honor God if you're single? He's going to address those three categories here throughout this chapter seven. So we're going to dive right into that. But now, a little bit of context to understand here is for the Corinthians, they were living in a world where when it came to how you related to your body, they uh, had a couple predominant thoughts that were philosophical ways of thinking. First one is called hedonism. And that meant that your life doesn't matter as far as in the physical. The only thing that matters is spiritual. Therefore, do whatever you want to bring pleasure in your physical body. It doesn't matter. That's just pleasure. It's all about pleasure and what you can experience. And this shows up, we see even in next week, next chapter, you'll see that Paul's wrestling with, well, in Christ we have freedom, but what does that really mean? So the Corinthians were wrestling with that. Oh, does it mean as long as spiritually we have a new identity, so physically we can live any way we want? That would be their hedonism, and that was predominant in Corinth. And the other one was this asceticism, which is essentially... It's the opposite where it's, I'm going to enjoy nothing. I'm going to find a way to remove all pleasure in my life as an act of worship or act of self-control. And I want to kind of eliminate everything to show God how serious I am. And so I'm going to abstain from everything in my life the best of my ability. And we have little glimpses of this even in uh, different faiths and new in uh, religions to this day. Buddhism has a, a form of this. In the highest form, if you want to attain nirvana, you want to get your body to the point where you desire nothing, where you have no cravings, no desires, and that's a form of asceticism, kind of trying to eliminate all expression or all emotion, all feelings. And so Corinthians had kind of both of those at play in their mind. So the reason I tell you that is because it goes into a question that they ask that we see in verse one of chapter seven. And the the question they were asking Paul was, what is more spiritual? What lifestyle is more spiritual? If we're to honor God with our bodies, so should we not ever, should we never enjoy anything physically? Should we just be, you know, practice eliminating all pleasure? Should we not be married? Should we be married? If we're married, is it okay if we still are intimate with one another? Or should we eliminate that? That was the actual questions they were asking. So in chapter, or verse one of chapter seven, Paul says, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, some of, some of you say, Ryan, get off that verse as quick as you can. And some of you is like, yeah, let's stay there. What, what he's really referring to is a question that they were asking about. And this is a form, this is actually a way of saying, is it good for us to get married? 
Is it good to be married or should we stay single? And, and as it, verse 2 goes on, he kind of goes deeper and says, because of the immoralities, or this is because this is that same word we had of porneia, we looked at last week, which is because uh, of your sexual desires. He says, each man is to have his own wife and each uh, wife is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And it's important that in that last verse I just read, we read the whole verse. It's important that you don't stop there and say, I have authority over your body. This is why even in the church there can be abuse and there can be this domineering relationships in unhealthy marriages when we misunderstand this and we think that marriage is about uh, one having dominance over the other. It's an unbiblical view of marriage. There may be different roles for genders that, that are laid out throughout scripture, but from the very beginning in Genesis chapter two, it says the two become one. You're something utterly new and it's male and female together become one whole u- unit. Now, even before that, when it, God describes the creation of man and woman and says, I, he looks at man and says, it's not good for these guys to be alone. And, and most of you ladies who are living with a husband, you'd say, yeah, it's good not for him to be alone. We know that to be true. I look at my boys' rooms and I think it's not good for them to be alone, left by themselves. And, and so there's this biblical truth there, but then he creates a, suitor, a, a, a helper suitable for him. Now, let's not think that that means he created a subservient person so that the things he doesn't want to do, she does. This language here is actually closer to uh, language meaning a soldier standing side by side. And so though male and female are different throughout scripture with different roles, they're equally important. And in the context of marriage, they are dependent upon one another. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, there's an instruction, instructions given to husbands and says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not a domineering type relationship. This is, I'm willing to lay down my life for you kind of relationship. And, and so Paul is alluding to that even here in marriage when he says, your body doesn't belong to just you and it doesn't just, it's, they belong to each other. There's something new that happens in the context of marriage. And so he starts off with that. So he's answering their question that if you're married, you belong to one another. And he says, uh, so in verse three, fulfill your duty to your wife and your wife to your husband. This is relating to that physical intimacy in the relationship. The Corinthians were struggling with this. If we're married and we want to honor God with our bodies, should we eliminate this part of our relationship? And literally one of their solutions, and this happened especially among the non-Christians in Corinth, was one of their solutions is in marriage, you don't have to have physical intimacy because just, just focus on the relationship, but you are okay if you want to go to a prostitute when you need to fulfill your sexual desires. That was their answer. So Paul is saying like, okay, no, that's not a good answer. And that was the practice in Corinth. There was many people inside and outside the church where that was their solution. So Paul says, no, 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 no. The two become one. You're a new, you are a new entity. And so therefore, cultivate that part of your relationship. Now, I know in a room like this, 
for those of you who are married and sitting next to each other, it is very common that this can be a point of contention. One of the biggest issues in marriage is this whole idea of physical intimacy and frequency and all that stuff. And and it's, it's, there's no simple solution. Except for Paul is saying, make sure that you don't ignore this part of your life. It's important. Part of it. But now, notice as he keeps going. He says, verse 5, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he says, if there's a season in your life, include prayer as a part of this part of your relationship. Does that seem kind of, you know, maybe uncomfortable for some of you? But he's like, if you're going to break for a season of time, use it for the purpose of devoting yourself to prayer. I would argue, if this is an issue for your family, use prayer as part of the solution and not praying like, oh, I pray that he has different desires or she has different desires or whatever it is. I pray when she looks at me, I look a lot more like Brad Pitt or whatever it is. It's not necessarily that, but together, hey, this is something, if we love each other, we're in a covenant agreement to be married and we want to stay married. We want to grow in our friendship. We want to grow in our love. We want to grow in our relationship. This is an important part of it. So let's invite God into this space. Let's invite, let, let's devote this part of our lives to prayer. And, and so that is one of the ways that Paul would say like, yeah, don't just be out there trying to find your solutions for, for a season. If you're apart, let it be to devote yourselves to prayer. And by the way, there is no uh, formula or length of time. Some of you are going like, okay, so how long can you be apart or whatever? Um, uh, just from a Hebraic Jewish culture standpoint, it's probably weeks, not months. Let me just say that, okay? And I'll leave that up to you and your spouse. <laughs> he goes on, verse six, I say this to you by way of concession, not of command. In other words, this isn't necessarily a biblical command to you, but this is just practical advice for your marriage. And then he says this, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And Paul is here alluding to the fact that we believe that Paul is single. Um, There's some question of whether he is a widow or just had always been single. There's no evidence that he had ever been married, but some think culturally that would be unusual either way. uh, We do know that at this case, Paul is single and he says, hey, I wish that you were all like me. But you don't all have that gift. You don't all have the ability to live a celibate life is essentially what he's saying. And I get it. Now he goes, he continues this argument here. Verse 8, now he continues and says, To the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain as I. But if they don't have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And he's dealing with, he's going to expand on that a little bit here in just a moment. He says, to the rest, I say, not the Lord. But he says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And likewise, if a woman is married to someone who does not believe, she should not leave him. So Paul again now is saying, okay, here's the next issue in marriage. What if you, are mar- you become a Christian, you're living by this new set of standards, and that your spouse is not? We know for some of you in this room, this is your reality. 
And some of you are here with your spouse, even though you do not believe, but you come as a sign of support. Um, I want to thank you for doing that. That's courageous. That's loving. That's a really cool thing that you're doing to come week after week to support your spouse, even if you don't share that faith yet. And for those of you who maybe you're here and you're journeying on all alone and you say, I wish my spouse believed what I believed. Paul has instructions and his instructions are don't leave. If you can stay in that situation, continue to represent Christ in that part of your life. He goes on in verse 14, says, The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. And for otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, this isn't saying if one of you is a Christian, everybody is. Essentially, what he's saying is there is a spiritual influence For one of you who's following the faith, it gives an opportunity for your kids, for your spouse, for the families to see Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, and we as a church want to continue to pray for you because that can be a challenging part of your life. But we want to encourage you with that too, as best as you are able to continue to represent the ways of Jesus and be a light to that family that you live with. And it's better for you to be there representing Christ to, to your kids and to your spouse than to leave. Now, we know that there's, there's a lot of, yeah, what ifs, and there's a lot of deeper issues here. There's abuse situations. There's times when it's not healthy for you to be there. So I'm not saying it's not a blanket statement, and we want to walk with you in wisdom with that. But in general, what Paul is saying is it can be difficult if only one of you believes, but there's an opportunity here to represent Christ to that family. So that's how Paul starts this whole thing. Essentially what he's saying is wherever you are, find a way to honor God in your situation. If you're married, honor God in that marriage. Build into that marriage. Invest in that marriage. Let that be an example to others around to see what a godly marriage looks like. Our world could use more examples of godly marriages. People who stick together, who love each other through thick and thin. This is an example that our world could use. So he says, stay in that situation. Now, he, after he's talking about that, now he's, he talks about, he, he kind of changes his argument. And we're going to go through this quickly just so you can see his train of thought. Verse 17, he says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. See, If he was already circumcised, he's not to then become uncircumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is to keep the commands of God. Each one must remain in the condition in which he is called. Seems like a weird switch, isn't it? Hey, if you're married, invest in your marriage. If you are married to an unbeliever, continue to invest there. Be a light for your kids. Oh yeah, and if you're circumcised, uh, if you're uncircumcised, stay that way. What? (laughs) What's your chain of thought, train of thought here? What are we talking about? Essentially what Paul's saying is we have a tendency as people to think if we just get into a different situation, if we can just change the circumstances, then I'll be closer to God. If I could just, if I was single, if I was just married, then all of a sudden I'd have everything I need. If I was married but my spouse was a little better, then everything would be okay. And so he goes into this uh, uh, totally different argument of, oh, if I'm uncircumcised, and in their culture, they're saying, well, should I participate in the covenant of the Jewish people? So maybe if then I do that, I'm more spiritual. And then I'm more acceptable. 
And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You quit looking at the circumstances to define you and to say, if only I have that and then things will be better. I believe this relates to Paul when he writes in Philippians chapter four, verse 12. He says, I found the secret to being content in every situation. And he talks about whether you have a lot or a little, whether things are going well or they're not. The secret to being content in every situation he goes into a very famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The very core of if you are looking for what is the key to whatever situation I'm in, that's a life in Christ. Not whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're married or single, whether it, all of that, that's not the key. The key is Christ. So again, we see Paul pointing us back to Jesus. Now, as he continues on, and, and he uses an example there with slaves, and he's not, this is not an endorsement on slavery culturally that had a very different than how American um, and the Western world um, engaged in slavery. But he used it, the same example of if you're subservient and in the Roman culture that existed, you can stay there. It's okay. It's not going to make you more spiritual to be out. And then he gets into verse 25, and this is for the single people. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. And this was a way of saying if you're, those who are single. But I give an opinion as one who is of the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that it's good in view of the present distress that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife and others if you're not married? Don't seek one. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if you remain unmarried, you have not sinned. And then he goes into this thing, yet there will be many trouble in this life and I'm trying to spare you. He's not saying marriage is trouble, okay? He's not saying like, hey, I'm, I'm warning you. <laughs> he goes on. He says, but what I say, brothers, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as they did not rejoice. This is a Hebraic way of saying Hey, the circumstances are changing and the world is passing away. Don't find everything you need. Don't act as if, if you just have that next thing, you'll be fulfilled. Because the time is short. This reminds me of uh, when Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 9, when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Hey, the time is short. Because then he goes on in verse 32 and says, I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what's appropriate and to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord. So Paul gets into this argument, hey, if you're single, there's some really good advantage to that as it relates to the kingdom of God. You have a life where it's undistracted devotion. Now, some of you single people say like, I'll trade that in for a companion. I get it. But in this season, what is God calling you to I remember when I was finishing up high school and I uh, was a pretty new Christian and at our, our church they had a fifth and sixth grade boys Sunday school class and someone asked me to help him for a week so I went in to help and he said can you help next week so I came back the second week and then the third week he said I'm not doing this anymore it's your class now and he left which I've told our children's ministry that's a great recruiting technique you should try it but 
But then for the next year, I was the teacher for these fifth and sixth grade boys, and I was there every single week, and our class grew, and I became the junior high director and had started a life of ministry. But there was a season in my life where there was this undistracted devotion to the Lord where God was using me in the life of these students, and it was a fun season. And even when I got married, though, we had to adjust. I remember that when I was with students, I was all in. I was with the students. It was fun for me. And then all of a sudden, I remember one, one time when we were engaged, we went to a baseball game, and I was hanging out with the students. And after the game, my, my fiancé, who's now my wife of 22 years, said, hey, um, you know, I was at the game too. <laughs> like, you were? were we? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, I know. I was sitting right next to you. Were you? <laughs> It was the only time we ever had conflict in our whole relationship. It was great. So, but there was a change from being, having undistracted devotion to the Lord that the only person I had to think about was me and Jesus. And I could go home at the end of the night and eat my top ramen and get up the next day and do it all over again. It was good. It was easy. And marriage has been awesome, but it changes how, you, how I interact in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's saying, if you're single, you take advantage of this season in your life. For some of you, we don't know how long it will be. We talked a little bit about it last week. But where you are, the goal is, and look at that again in verse 35. What, what I want to do is to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord. And for some of you, that's while you're single. For some of you, that's in your marriage. Now, in marriage, there's a little bit of a distraction, but then together, how do you have a devotion to the Lord as a married couple? How do you have devotion to the Lord as a family with kids when they don't sleep? (laughs) How do you live out that? So what Paul is addressing is this question, is how do we honor God in every circumstance? What circumstance are you in this morning? And how can we honor God in that? And how can we not be people that say, if only I get to the next thing, then it's going to be better. And say, Lord, where do you have me now? How can I honor you now where I am? Now, one of the questions, if you are single, is it okay to pray for a spouse? Is it okay to long for that? I would say yes. It's okay. It's okay if that's a desire in your heart. And and I would be praying for that person. Pray for yourself. But I In it, be praying that God gives you an incredible amount of patience and wisdom. And I want to give you encouragement to not compromise. And I know it's difficult. We've had these, this week I've had some great conversations with some of our uh, single adults. He said, Ryan, this is tough. Walk with us, journey with us. And we want to do that as a church, but I want to encourage you, don't compromise. And that temptation is there to say, oh, I just want to get to the next thing. And then we're asking our spouse to fulfill in your life what, the place that Christ has. So when we're always looking for the next thing, we can get impatient and we can make some wrong decisions. Now, if you've already made a decision that you say, wow, we got married and I kind of regret this decision, um, again, be faithful where you are to the best of your ability. But if you're single and you're praying for it, it's okay to pray. And also pray that God would give you patience and he'd walk with you through this journey. Because it's tough. Uh, I also want to just put a little teaser out there for you. Last week, we talked about this issue of singleness. And as a church family, we want to come alongside those of you 
um, who we want to provide the friendship and the intimacy that you would normally have in a relation, in a married relationship. We think as a church, we need to walk with everyone who's not in those situations. So we're actually this week trying to think through how we can systematize making sure no one eats alone on the holidays. So if that's you, we, we're going to be a church. We want to put our, our faith in action and say, hey, if we're asking you to go through a season, that whatever season you're in, we're going to provide places for you. So maybe for you, you're a home that's going to be a host. Maybe others, you just say, hey, we'd love to come and take advantage of that. We as a church want to be together in this journey and walk with you. And so we're going to put that into action starting in the next couple weeks. As we end, I want to invite the worship team to come back up. And I know we covered a lot of ground this week. Our teaching team wrestled with it. Should we talk about the whole sermon, the whole chapter this week? Should we break it in to a few? And what we decided was either way, we knew that every week we'd be saying the same thing. Our desire, whether you're single, married, whatever situation, is that we want to be people who honor God with our lives. We want to put Jesus in the forefront of who we are. Let who he says we are define us, not our circumstances. So we're going to end our time. I want to invite you to stand as we sing this last song together. Again, standing as a sign of unity side by side as a church family. Recognizing that there is some pain in this room as it relates to this whole issue. And some of you feel wounded. Some of you are broken. Some of you are incredible examples for others of us. And wherever you're at, we want to just stand together recognizing that Jesus is the one who's worthy of all from us and that he is the healer. You're not lost. He's not unable to redeem you. That there's hope. And so together we stand together as people of hope because of Jesus. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. And I pray that in this place as we end our time, Lord, would you speak to each one of us God, for those marriages who need a touch of healing and hope, would you speak into those today? God, for those who are single in here, we pray that you would guide and direct and bring your comfort and your peace that passes all understanding. Lord, those who are widowed, would you provide that friendship and intimacy with others that they miss? God, would you help us as a church to build our lives on who you are, And in every circumstance, have you as a forefront that we can walk together in love on you as our foundation, you as our identity. We thank you and give you this time. In Jesus' name.